Welcome to Pazina Perspectives, brought to you by Pazina Investment Management, a global value manager known for our commitment to fundamental research and disciplined value investing. This podcast is presented by Pazina Investment Management, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and is intended for institutional investors only. The views expressed reflect the current views of Pazina as of the date hereof and are subject to change. There is no guarantee that any projection, forecast, or opinion in this material will be realized. Past performance is not indicative of future results. In the UK, this podcast is for professional clients only. This marketing communication is presented by Pazina Investment Management Limited, which is an appointed representative of Vittoria and Partners LLP. Vittoria and Partners LLP is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Welcome to Pazina Perspectives and the latest in our podcast series. For those that don't know us, Pazina Investment Management is a global deep value manager known for our commitment and dedication to disciplined classic value investing throughout an investment cycle. We're probably best known for the fact that that's all we've done since the firm's formation back in 1995, and that we implement our process in a disciplined and systematic way. My name is Adrian Jackson, and I'm based in our London office looking after a number of our UK clients. I'm delighted to be joined today by John Getz and Akil Subramanian. John is one of our co-founders, a co-CIO, and one of the co-portfolio managers on our Europe, global, non-US and Japanese portfolios. Akil joined us in 2017 as a research analyst and at the start of this year was added to our emerging market PM team. He still though keeps a number of research responsibilities and currently looks after coverage for us for PNC insurance and retail consumer. So for example, some of the names that are currently in our portfolio that he covers are Alibaba, Baidu and Tencent. John and Akil, welcome. Nice to see you both. And thanks for taking the time to do this. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be focusing on China. And that's mainly because having offered uh, EM portfolio since 2008, we've recently been asked by a number of clients to start managing both EMX China and China-only portfolios. Uh, John, maybe to kick things off, if you can kind of talk a bit about, you know, why we're doing that and what the context is, please. Yeah, well, we all know that, that China's been in the press uh, a ton over the last five or so years, starting with the trade wars and kind of what I'll call geopolitical. Then we have the exit from COVID, which was, we know, very difficult in China and, and left them struggling. And then even the recovery uh, post-COVID is anemic, uh, to, to say the least. Uh, as a consequence of the combination of geopolitical, but also the history of China being large, uh, I've been saying to people, it's kind of inevitable that China gets pulled out separately. You can see it going either way. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, a state in the United States might decide no China investment uh, in, in the pension fund. So they would then have to do EMX China just out of a geopolitical uh, perspective. But on the flip side, even on the positive side, if China does continue to grow, which we think it will, it'll be an increasingly important economy in the global markets and will be considered developed at some stage. So whether you have a positive view, which is China continues to grow and become more significant, then it becomes China only. Or if you have a very negative view that we shouldn't invest in China, I'm being extreme, obviously we think you should invest in China, but that, that extreme view would leave you doing emerging markets ex-China. 
thus we've tried to be ready for the future here and, and actually are, are doing both, if you will. Adrian, is that helpful? I think it is. Okay. All right. Let's widen the lens a bit to start with. I think it'll be useful. Uh, 22, 22 years ago, this you know acronym BRICS comes along. Okay, uh, we're we're told that these you know these countries are going to take the world by storm. Uh, 22 years later, if I look at the performance of, of these countries and compare it to the S&P 500, for example, the S&P 500 has been much stronger. Can you give some insight into that? What are we looking at there? Yeah, yeah. It really amazes me. I've just been around for a while. So it, it does startle me, the drama, I'll say it, of valuations and the stories that develop over time. Uh, as you mentioned at the outset, we're a firm that focuses on valuation. Uh, so we're looking at buying things when they're undervalued. Uh, clearly, uh, the, the BRICS, uh, the, the countries that made up that acronym, were really driven by China's uh, industrialization, I'll say. Uh, and that really took root in the early 2000s. And during that period of time, between the earliest of the 2000s uh, up to the, the global financial crisis, uh, it, it, it outperformed by almost a factor of six times uh, the amount of, of the S&P 500 in the United States. So during that period of time, if you weren't investing in emerging markets, you were obviously a moron and didn't understand uh, that the BRICS were going to take over the world. I say that because the story was pretty much that. I remember talking to some people and I'd say, well, I think the valuations are looking a little stretched and we weren't finding as many opportunities in China. And, and people were saying, well, don't you know China's taking over the world and don't you know oil is going to 200? Uh, you know, it was kind of like just a, a, if you're not, you know, if you're reading the newspaper, this is kind of the impression you had. So really what's set up here, and I think it's part of the disappointment in emerging markets as well as China over the last 15 years, is really because you launch from such a highly hopeful and highly, shall I say, overvalued point, you know, at the end of that long run. So I think the bricks were kind of set up for failure. So I'm going to jump in and just add a couple of things here, just uh, so we can talk about the grading of the actual performance of the countries versus the performance of their stock markets. So we did discuss the fact that BRICS was a term that was invented because these countries were going to take the world by storm. And if you look at their economic growth over the past two decades, I think giving them the most generous endpoints, it's probably fair to say two of the five countries delivered on that promise of high growth. Um, the rest of them underperformed developed markets such as the U US and more so for sure in the last 10 years. Uh, so even though the performance came through on the GDP front, the stock prices didn't, obviously, because BRICS have underperformed since the term was invented in 2001 and since South Africa joined the BRICS in 2010. So as, as much as you can get excited about the promise of the fundamentals, if you're not paying the right price for a business or for a theme, you probably won't end up making money. Yeah, it just goes back to the point that because they had gone up by a factor of six in valuation as a group of capital markets, that they just entered the next 20 years with an outrageous valuation that has been corrected now. And that's what we're excited by uh, to pick up the individual opportunities. John, you were one of the original PMs on EM when we started managing money in 2008. Um, that was the height of the BRICS. How did that feel? Well, what I'll, what I'll say there is, uh, you know, the, re, the reality is whenever the market momentum is in a direction that where we think the valuations are already a little bit stretched, 
that usually isn't a good period for us, right? That story is working. And what we're looking at, I like to say there's only two kinds of companies in the world now, those that are, you know, there is a problem or those that will have a problem in the future. And during that period of time, uh, the BRICS was the place to be for, for, for an investment thesis that had no problems at all. Um, so, so I think that what, what's happened here is after the peak, the, the BRICS really began disappointing, and that really set up the next stage of this whole investment cycle. Uh, we're not looking at the new thing. We're looking at some things where people aren't thinking it's the new thing. Uh, and, and in that sense, uh, the BRICS have been disappointing, and I think now is a better opportunity to look at those countries than, than say, 2007. Okay, thanks for that. Let's turn our attention to China now, which if, if we look at things since the COVID lows is down about 20%, well, the developed world as I'm looking at in total is up of over 60%. The S&P's more than doubled. Um, Akil, let's come to you, please. Some sentiment, about, some sentiment on China, if you can. Yeah, sure. Um, so a couple of things to note. You know, the news flow obviously has not been great. You can hear stories about foreign investors pulling money out of China. There was some optimism at the beginning of the year around the reopening. That's obviously waned. There's less appetite for risk. Uh, you've obviously heard about geopolitical tensions with the West, uh, tariffs, trade blocks. So in general, you know, the rhetoric is not good. And then you add on top of that industries that have come to the fore in the sense of the property development sector is in the news almost every day. That's a fairly large part of the economy. Households aren't spending. The population's recently peaked. So if you think about sentiment, generally speaking, it's hard to find positives in the news and in, in the consensus. Don, it sounds pretty bleak, no? Yeah, uh, it, it, it does. And of course, uh, in, in the bleakness is the opportunity. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, if, if sentiment is, is positive, you're not going to find uh, really attractive uh, valuations. And we take that to the stock level. Uh, the most important thing for us is to find uh, an individual company where the sentiment is negative and thus creating the valuation opportunity. But to the point on China more broadly, uh, I like to say, you know, China will be what it will be, and you either get to buy it at lower valuations or you get to buy it at higher valuations. Uh, and, and as we alluded to earlier, if you look at the last 15 years, very, very, very disappointing on the valuation side. The fundamentals might not have changed as much as as people think, um, you know, they're just they're just initiating kind of an outlook uh, perspective where they're thinking about five five percentage growth, five percent GDP growth, and if you think about five percent GDP growth, it, it is still better than the West. Uh, so so as a consequence, if you think China is going to shrink into oblivion, you know that would be one perspective. I think that would be quite a biased perspective to expect negative GDP growth. Then the real gem for us, and, and Akhil will talk about some of the company examples, is for us to find those opportunities in specific companies where indeed the opportunity is to underpay for the earnings growth of the future. Thanks for that. Okay. So we look at the last few years, China's lagged the rest of the world significantly. You know, some market commentators say there's possibly a recession around the corner for China, but we've been adding to exposure to China and AEM portfolios. I think we're now up to about 31% versus 22% a couple of years ago. Um, John, why have we been added to the exposure with that background? Yeah, I think we've set that up now. Uh, I think that really um, we do this on a company by company basis. So, so how, do we, how do we do our discipline investing? 
what we're looking for is to identify businesses that are solidly positioned vis-a-vis -vis competition that do have a positive uh, future ahead of them in terms of the opportunity to get earnings growing again if they've had a big faltering. So we're not interested in, in cigar butts here. I, I know who came out with that slogan originally, but uh, the reality is we're interested in businesses that are well positioned and, and can grow earnings in the future. We've just found a lot more of those meeting our valuation criteria over the last two years uh, than we had previously. That's the whole point of the underperformance providing an opportunity for us to enter and get good performance in the future. That's enough for now on the, just the, the general overview of China. Let's come on to some, some, some of our holdings. Uh, can we start with higher, please? Sure. Um, so higher is an investment we've made um, in the last 12 months. It's a uh, household kitchen appliance company. So think fridges, uh, refrigerators, washing machines, water heaters. Um, it's one of the big three in China. So if you look at their segments, it's actually very interesting because it tells you a lot about the growth and the competitive dynamics in the country. You know, I think one of the main things that you can see there is people tend to associate the business with new home sales, but what's really underappreciated is the fact that it's more of a replacement demand market. So if you think about fridges and washing machines, there's basically no correlation with uh, new home sales. It's very much about your fridge breaks, or you want to upgrade your fridge or your washing machine. And so really, Hire is about replacement demand and a consumption upgrade. You know, they have a premium brand named Casate, which is taking a fair amount of share in China. You know, the business has also gone through various competitive dynamics. There's been price wars in air conditioning. There's been price wars in other sectors. And what we really like about the business is you have a fairly good level of stability now in China in the sense that you have the big three uh, that sort of dominate the market. And really, what's been happening there is Competitive dynamics are fairly rational. There are some pieces of the business that are growing, like water heaters. That's a new penetration story. And there's really a fantastic turnaround business in Hire in North America. Now, a lot of people may not realize this, but Hire bought the GE brand from GE, going back in history. And that was really a unloved, unfocused on business within GE. And over the last few years, Hire has been really turning around the manufacturing operations of the company and taking a fair amount of market share in North America. I think they used the COVID-related supply chain disruptions to really go after Home Depot, um, and they've been winning a lot of business at Home Depot and basically taking it away from competitors such as Whirlpool uh, and Electrolux. So I think what we like about the business is it's a fairly stable business in China, and in North America, there's really an opportunity to come after some of the incumbents uh, with a very well-positioned brand. Yeah, I think it's worth noting there, Adrian, that, you know, the reality is some of the pain and some of the opportunities actually in North America for a Chinese listed company. Right. So you hate China, but you obviously don't hate the United States because I think, you know, certain stocks, certainly in the United States are more expensive. Uh, so there's less fear in the United States listings. Yet what we have here is a controversy that really revolves in part around higher taking share uh, in North America. Uh, just a little point about global research. One of the fun things is when things come together that way, because we've obviously covered uh, and owned uh, Whirlpool uh, and other appliance manufacturers in the United States. So we have quite a bit of, of, of history in the industry. And what we saw during the last 20 years is GE basically giving up on the North American market and making very little money in North America. 
uh, we think Hire is doing a better job with the GE brand than GE did. And that's kind of the point Akil was making, which is pretty interesting. Uh, and I think it also is pretty cool because they have that, that good strategy where they're introducing the Hire brand as well for Home Depot, which allows them to do a lower price brand along with a premium price brand, which is which is uh, GE. So pretty interesting positioning here in the United States. But I think the more compelling part is Chinese consumption will continue to grow. Um, what, what is your estimate for Chinese consumer growth in appliances? I think the estimate will be around about where GDP is. And about, so it's exciting to see that this is not a dying business. It's a growing business in China. Um, and what they're doing in America is what you'd expect them to do, the good, better, best strategy. And it seems to be working. Right, right. Um, I, I like this, you know, when you look at, at, at global investing, it's almost sometimes almost like arbitrage, like you pay way less for the cash flow because it happens to be domiciled in China than you do if you bought it in the United States. Kind of cool. Right. And I think it also speaks to the way our team set up. You know, we cover industries globally. So our kitchen appliance analyst, Sarah, has been talking to hire and their competitors globally, not just in China or North America, and getting a really good perspective uh, in terms of what are the competitive dynamics in each of the regions and what is each company's plan to take share or fight back? Okay, let's come on to something else for now. Um, deglobalization, um, something that's getting talked about. How do you th guys think about the risk of deglobalization? Let's start with higher and then maybe move to China more broadly if we can, please. Yeah, sure. So in, in higher's case, it's interesting because a lot of the manufacturing is what we call local to local. Um, we also see this in other sectors such as the automotive industry. Um, if you're selling in North America, you're making in the Americas. If you're selling in Europe, you're making in Europe. So that's actually the way the, the plants are set up. It actually is time sensitive and cost competitive to be manufacturing locally. And so in this instance, deglobalization doesn't affect hire as much as they're already sort of local to local set up. If you think about our broader portfolio, I think since we're so focused on bottom-up stock fundamentals, we typically look at each business that comes through the research pipeline and ask ourselves, is there a competitive advantage to be making the product in China or Vietnam or Indonesia. And that's typically the way we do our research. So when you think about themes like globalization, we feel that we have a portfolio of companies that actually have a competitive advantage in manufacturing where they do manufacture, or that they're going to places where they will have a competitive advantage. I can think of two examples. You know, We own a shoe manufacturer, Yu Yuan, in uh, the EM portfolio, they have facilities all over the world, primarily in Asia, and they really still have a uh, footprint in China because they feel like China is the globally competitive region to be making high-end Nike shoes. We also own Han Hai, which makes uh, iPhones, and China is the place where you can make iPhones at the lowest price using the best technology. And often people think of these companies as just a labor arbitrage, but you know, Han Hai has spent a lot of money in looking at the components that make up an iPhone, and they really do have a competitive advantage in making specific components like casings. So as much as we want to deglobalize, that shift is going to take a lot longer than people may appreciate. How about we move on to real estate and Coley and talk about coming out of the frying pan into the fire? Well, let me just make an introductory comment. Uh, you know, I, I said two things earlier. One is we're trying to buy good businesses uh, selling at inexpensive prices. So, so if you find a really good business, it's expensive because something dramatic is going on and i don't think anyone doubts that there's something dramatic going on what's also fun uh is if you find a business that does better and improves their competitive sta standing during a difficult period that's your real long run winner 
So with the comment I've obviously alluded to, we think Coley may benefit in the long run from, from this disruption in the real estate market. Uh, and, and that's what we're looking for. We're looking for uh, industries that might be dramatically out of favor. Certainly real estate in, in China is massively out of favor. But instead of buying the Evergrande and hoping, crossing your fingers and hoping it doesn't go bankrupt, uh, we're looking for companies that may be better positioned uh, ex-crisis than, than pre-crisis. Uh, what, what do you want to say about I'm going to say something more positive. As much as everyone hates China property, there are underlying structural trends. You know, there is an urbanization dividend. People are moving to big cities. People are still getting married and forming new households. People are still upgrading old housing stock that's falling apart. Um, and then, of course, there's things like speculation and froth. Um, you know, what our analyst Sabo has done a really good job of is actually looking at each of these underlying drivers to say, what would a normalized level of demand look like? And as we've gone through the process of picking apart what's more structural and what's less froth, we sort of arrived at the idea that there are certain property developers that we would be very attracted to based on the fact that there is structural demand in China. Now, when it comes to Coley, I think what we learned through doing all the stock-specific research is there's probably one or two developers that we'd really buy, and it's basically because we want to stay away from certain parts of the market that have had too much froth. So with Coley, I think what we like about the business is it's a tier one, tier two city type of developer. It's scaled, so it's large and typically in places where there actually is strong supply and demand. Um, you know, we were going over their portfolio and their newly acquired land bank trying to nitpick some holes in it. And the largest, the smallest city rather that they have a presence in has about 8 million people. So these, these are, you know, big cities, growing cities, by the way, not 15 million going down to eight. It's actually 7 million going up to eight. And so we like the idea that they're acquiring land bank in desirable cities. A couple of other things to note. It's a state-owned developer. You may have read in the news that privately-owned developers have had financing issues and liquidity issues. So we like the idea that they have access to deep pools of capital. And they've done a pretty good job of navigating a mix between USD funding when the dollar is uh, cheap because of interest rates and moving back to RMB funding because the RMB is cheap because of interest rates. So while things sound bad, there are actually pretty good companies that you can find that have competitive advantages, scale, access to markets where the supply and demand balance is pretty favorable. And I think the last thing we want to point out is Coley is really good at I guess what we call counter-cyclical acquiring. So there was a period last year where a lot of developers couldn't come, up, come to the auctions and buy land because they were constrained for whatever reason. And that was a time when Coley was fairly aggressive in acquiring land bank. This year, it's been a bit more competitive and they've stepped away from these auctions. And so we liked the idea of, as you said, John, a competitively uh, advantaged company doing the right thing, trying to take advantage of a lot of turmoil in a sector. Lastly, can we, I'm conscious of time. Um, can we discuss Alibaba? Uh, what does a deep value investor like us see in a name like Alibaba? Yeah, you know, uh, I'll just take that one to, to start the setup. You know, for many, many years during this value trough going up, basically to the end of COVID globally, we would tell people, well, you don't expect us to buy a company like Alibaba that's overvalued, or you don't expect us to buy uh, Tesla you know, on some speculation that they're going to be 20% of the global auto market someday. Um, so we would complain about these high multiple valuations. Uh, so I'll have to say, as a long-term value investor, 
when a company like Alibaba or GE, for that matter, which we bought uh, in, in 2018, when that company collapses all the way into our first quintile in our screening tool, which is just comparing the stock price to what the future of the business should be from a cash flow and earnings standpoint, it's a bit of a stunner, right? When a company goes from the fifth quintile all the way to the first quintile. Now, we mentioned some of the geopolitical fears that were driving the whole China market down and, and all of BRICS for that matter, down into more reasonable uh, valuation territory. But to get a company that was as loved as Alibaba in the first quintile, it's a bit of a stunner uh, when you see that happen. I'm just gonna throw in a little anecdote uh, from the history, because we put this in our most recent newsletter. Um, we look back at the highest market caps in the United States during the dot-com bubble when there was tons of hope in those 10 companies that were the largest companies. And then we just wanted to point out how much cheaper we bought them and if we bought them, you know, over the ensuing decades. It turned out, to my surprise, actually, we ended up buying nine out of the 10, just at valuations that on average were below 50% of where they were maybe 10 or 20 years earlier. Pretty dramatic stuff. Uh, so Alibaba came crashing down. I think I probably took about a 75% drop, uh, you know, during that course of time that, that got into the first quintile. And this is, uh, I'll mention, you know, one of the things in, in rejuvenating the team, bringing in new people, rotating coverage over time. It was one of the opportunities uh, when Akil joined us of a new area, I'll call it new area of intellectual property. He's new to the team, has fresh perspective. So one of the things that was kind of cool when Akil joined us was, oh, wow, we've never done anything like Alibaba before. Let's let Akil do it. Uh, so, so we gave it to Akil. So, what, I, I, over to you. Uh, just, just you know, let you explain kind of what you saw as it was crashing, as the stock was crashing. Yeah, I think uh, you know a couple of things, and this is not specific to Alibaba. We'll get to the specifics, but you know, a lot of these high-flying names in China that we now have, you know, have made their way into our portfolios: Alibaba, Baidu first, then Alibaba, and now Tencent. I think what we saw was. In a period of high growth, there was very little expense control. There was very little monetization of assets, very little by way of doing anything except enjoying the high growth that was coming along. And, and now that things have normalized, everyone's taking a very keen eye to their expenses. Everyone is managing their sales and marketing budgets, their R&D budgets. Um, they're selling non-core assets. Um, and they're really focusing on improving the earnings of the business. So as difficult as this period has been over the last three years, first with tech crackdown and then reopening and then lack of optimism and people not spending money, uh, earnings have actually been improving for a lot of these companies because they've actually taken a keen eye towards managing the budgets. Hold it. You're saying even though the valuation is down, the businesses might be better going forward because of it? It appears as though the earnings are improving slowly, but surely, but the valuations are coming in. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So interesting what, place but, to but be but in. But just to put it back to you, when you saw Alibaba and we, and we came out with that as an assignment, was that kind of stunning to you as well, or, or, or you thought, oh, you know, this is, this is logical? No, I think it was shocking because it, it's, um, it's really hard with that kind of history. When you look at the history of some of these companies where you see high growth and expenses all over the place, it's really hard to think about what normalized earnings might be, which is basically what we do. Um, and so it's, when you do assignments such as this, I think it's just... And it's not just unique to Alibaba. We see this across all of our portfolios. Sometimes the range of outcomes can be very, very wide because competitive dynamics are uncertain. You still have people entering. You have people 
making uncompetitive decisions or very irrational decisions. Um, but over time, these things will settle. And if you're paying a low enough multiple for the business, that sort of absolves managing through the range of outcomes that you might encounter. Oh, also, uh, we should mention, you know, the specifics around Alibaba's valuation. So the way we think about it is, you know, it's about a 200 billion market cap with 60 billion of net cash that just did about 25 billion of free cash flow over the last 12 months. So we think it's trading at a very attractive multiple of normalized earnings and free cash flows. And on top of that, they continue to pair back losses in segments that have been losing money. Um, they're monetizing various assets in order to, basically because they find that these assets are non-core or they think that they can get a good value in the market. And so we think they're doing all the right things to basically refocus on their core portfolios, which are the e-commerce business and the cloud business. So in that sense, we're, we're excited by the opportunity at Alibaba, given the low valuation um, and the fact that they're doing the right things to generate shareholder value. How do you decide that core business, that e-commerce position, how do you decide whether they're well positioned or not in, in e-commerce? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a very uh, interesting and challenging exercise because there's competition coming in, um, competition coming in via various formats. And so you have to look globally and locally to see are there any themes that you can translate from the developed markets back to China and are there any, any things that are going on within China that are unique to the country. So at the end of the day, I think we ask ourselves, what is the value proposition of their e-commerce business? What is the reason that someone is going on there and willing to advertise and pay them a commission? Um, and at the end of the day, we find that the alternative is to sell things offline. And the proposition of paying Taobao or Tmall advertising fees and commissions uh, is worth selling online through their platform. So at the end of the day, they are providing a value to the merchants um, and that's why they show up and they bid in a competitive auction and pay advertising fees to them. And that continues to grow. And that continues to grow. Okay. I think uh, we should maybe call it a, a day there. Uh, thanks, Akil. Thanks, John. Um, thoroughly enjoyed doing it. Interesting as always. Um, just quickly for our listeners, if anyone does want to go into more detail on the topics we've discussed, they should get in touch with their regular Pazina contacts or just drop an email to info as info at pazina.com. Uh, there's also a note we wrote uh, at the end of the summer following a trip that Caroline made to China. We're happy to share with people. Again, just drop an email to your uh, regular Pazina contact. Uh, as always, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll see you soon. Bye now. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Pazina Perspectives. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And for more insights on value investing, visit our website at www.pazina.com. That's www.pzena.com.